I want to do something tonight that I've done before, but I'm not too worried about it. Sometimes I get worried, but I'm not tonight. Because I want to teach you what the Lord has given us in understanding salvation. For those that are listening to this audio cassette or watching this videotape, you need to have a chart in front of you entitled Salvation Divided by the Scriptures. It is a chart that has printing on the front side and the back side, and it will be in with your tapes when you receive them, and you'll need it for this short study of the doctrine of salvation. I want to tell you, you my brethren here, that I had something else prepared for tonight, but in the middle of this morning's sermon, looking at your faces and the faces of your children, we must understand and enjoy and appreciate and love the things that are freely given to us by Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of copies for everyone. You do not need to share. There are plenty of copies for everyone. In the middle of preaching to you about the mysteries of hidden wisdom and looking at your face, the true mysteries are the doctrine of salvation in Jesus Christ. Right. You know, I can, I can show you other mysteries in the Bible, like what is 666? The Bible says, here is wisdom. And then it goes on to explain 666, it's the number of a man, it's the number of the beast, and we could do all sorts of fiddling trying to figure that out, but it's of no spiritual value in comparison to Jesus Christ and him crucified. That man has been identified 1,500 years ago and well understood, and that's why the martyrs were so willing to give their lives because they knew that the bishop and priest standing there ordering the fire to be lit were, were the uh, emissaries and servants of that beast. They understood it. We don't need to go back there. The importance is the mysteries that are in Christ Jesus that are conveyed through the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. The second reason is that I'm propelled to do this tonight is because a memory verse that we have for this week is 2 Timothy 2.15, and it separates us from the rest of the religious world on how we use the Bible. Right. That verse is study to show thyself approved unto God. For a man to be approved unto God, he has to study. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. There is a way that you can study and there's a way that you can preach that's going to end up in shame. But you were not to be that way. We're to be workmen that aren't ashamed, especially the ministry, rightly dividing the word of truth. God's word must be divided. There are terms that are used in the Bible that sometimes they mean this and sometimes they mean that. And so we have to rightly divide between when they mean this and when they mean that Otherwise, we're going to end up shamed in our doctrine. And while I was preaching to you this morning and realizing within myself how that the blessings and the mysteries and the hidden wisdom is our doctrine of salvation, I wanted to go over this again because I doubt if anyone in here could stand and let me ask you a few questions about this. But on this page, front and back, you have summarized for you by the grace of God, I well remember the day. Trash 80. Thank you. Still same format. Printed off that DWP 410. Still remember it, although it's been long retired. I remember the Lord letting... That's just the apparatus that I used to get this on a piece of paper. I remember being in my office in the basement of 403 Delnort Road 
in Greenville, Michigan, a couple years after I was, or a year after I was your pastor, and wanting to get a grip on the doctrine of salvation to be able to help us see, begging God on my face, begging God to show me how that salvation lined up. I saw some of the phases, but it just wasn't all gelling. And the Lord had mercy, and I'm not one that believes in visions nor tells about dreams, but I typed as fast as I could, and I can type fast, and this came together in just a short period of time, which was the, the, which shows how we divide the Bible on the doctrine of salvation. And I want to explain this page to you so that you can take it home, use it in your studies, and use it with your children, and use it in defending the truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. Unless there were divisions to be made in the word of God, that commandment wouldn't be there. We must rightly divide the word of truth, and salvation certainly needs to be divided. Another reason why this is important, the Bible says that men will depart from sound doctrine and will no longer endure it. And if you really want to know the truth, this page is nothing but sound doctrine. It is doctrine all over it. It's the doctrine that the world finds very boring now, justification, sanctification. I want to show you before we finish, and not very long, how easy it is to understand the doctrine of sanctification. You walk into that room of 50 PhDs and say, open to me the doctrine of sanctification. They won't even know what you're talking about. They'll wonder if it's some new biological process of the evolutionary imagination of Charles Darwin that they missed in their studies. They will not know what the doctrine of sanctification is. It is one of God's blessings and a hidden mystery for us. And I want to show you how easy it is to know it by using this. Brethren, if you were to go to seminary, if you got past the bachelor's degree stuff, which is just introductory and like Sunday school, and you got into some master's courses, they would call it soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. They've got to give it big words so that they can earn a living. If they didn't give it big words, there's no reason for their existence. So they give it big words. You know, if you're going to study man, you don't say let's study man, let's call it anthropology because it makes it sound important. Instead of studying Bible prophecy, they call it eschatology. If instead of studying the church, it's ecclesiology. Instead of studying salvation, it's soteriology. And this is what you would, you will get more off this page in the next 40 minutes than you would in their courses because they do not know how to line it up. Amen. And I'll show you by their doctrine in just a moment. And they would tell you that if you're really deep, for you students that want to go deeper than what I've given you in this master's course, you will want to study the Ordo Salutis, which is the order of salvation. The Ordo Salutis. And it's all right here. And I want you to know that. Look, does the Bible give us an ordo salutis, the order of salvation? Does it give us the fact that we ought to divide salvation up and it comes in order? How about this? Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now there you have an order of five steps in the salvation of man laid out in the Bible. And so we take from that the right, the commandment, the duty to rightly divide the word of truth. How about 1 Peter 1, 2? Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Three stages of salvation right there in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. One's in eternity, one was at the cross, 
and one takes your physical existence because it's by the sanctification of the Spirit. Right in one verse. Brethren, I'm commanded and told if I'm a good householder, Matthew 13, 52, I'm going to bring things old and new out of the treasury. This right. is something old, but I'm so... I wrote it. I look at this often, and I'm excited to present it to you tonight and go over it again. Amen. If I can show you in 45 minutes, because God's been merciful to us, to see all these things that have been kept hidden in 45 minutes laid out for you to understand. Right. And I want you to be able to give an answer of the reason of the hope that is within you. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, because our ordo salutis does lift up the Lord God because he's in charge of the whole order. Amen. And I want you to be able to give an answer. Do you know in the Bible it says they read in the, in the law of God distinctly and they gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. And I want to show you the sense of the word of God. They have no sense. of uh, th Those that are trained in seminaries and get in pulpits, here's what they do. Tonight's sermon would be 15 minutes about Lazarus and the rich man. When he, got, when he gets to the end, he's going to ask the choir and the audience to sing softly. The organ's going to play, and they're going to start out with just as I am. He's going to promise only one time, but then he's going to probably make it somewhere between five and 25 times. And they're going to do just as I am. And he's going to say, Revelation, he's going to quote Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks, and if you want to have eternal life and know that you're going to go to heaven when you die... All you have to do is invite Jesus into your heart. And you know what kind of educational attainments that man has had? Many years of supposedly studying the Bible and theology, and he can't even get the verse right. The verse is not addressed to sinners at all. That verse is in Revelation chapter 320, and it's addressed to the churches of Asia that churches can get caught up in their activities and overconfidence and forget their personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. And he misses the whole boat. We better be able to look at verses and put a sense upon them. So that's what we want to do tonight. Look at your chart number one. Remember, there's two sides. One is called chart two, and one is called chart one. And everyone that's listening to this by cassette or watching the video, I hope that you have this chart in front of you. Otherwise, this will be very difficult to follow. Looking at chart one, I want you to see that there are three sections. I do not have lines drawn, but there are three sections. There is a description set, three rows. There is a description row, a condemnation row, and a salvation row, three sections. There are five columns. In those five columns, God has shown us how he has worked out salvation for the salvation of sinners. And on this page is all the information you need to be able to take those that have been taught improperly and show them the truth right here on this page. Let's start with the description. We have the eternal phase. We're not talking about condemnation or sin or salvation yet. We're just talking in general. Does the Bible tell us that God has an eternal phase to his movements and actions? Yes. What God does in time, God has purposed in eternity past. Acts 15:18 tells us, known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. What we mean by the eternal phase is God's purpose and plan in his eternal counsel of what he is going to do. You say, when was that counsel held? It was held in eternity. When was that? You just asked the question that I don't know how to answer. It's way back in the mind of God. But what he does in time, 
He has purposed in eternity because the Bible tells us that. That's the eternal phase. And you can see the description of it there and verses to prove it. Let's come to the legal phase. God is a just being. When God purposes to do something in his eternal phase, he does it right, which means he can only operate in certain ways. In order for him to be just, he must do things that are just. He cannot simply, and I have to jump a little bit ahead, he cannot simply clear people that are guilty. He cannot simply acquit people that are wicked. He must deal justly. And so there is a legal sense to God's dealings in which he must do things fairly with his own nature. Men don't call God in question. And what would the apostle say to anyone that called God in question? God forbid, is what the apostle Paul would say. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? You don't even have a right to question him. But God's own nature limits his choices and his purposes because he has to operate according to his nature. And when I say has to, it's a glorious has to. Amen. God cannot lie. Aren't you glad that God cannot lie? Aren't you glad there's some things God cannot do? He cannot lie and he cannot die. And I'm glad for both of those. And there's several more too. But God does everything legally. This reconciles God's nature. It's the basis of God's operation, as you can see here in the definition and the verses. I know there's a lot of verses and a lot of words on this page, but if you'll follow me, I want it to be like part of your mind at looking at the scriptures and seeing how they fall into place. This is not the Bible. This is simply God's tool that he's given me to give to you to rightly divide the word of truth. The third phase, the vital phase. For God to do anything with anyone in time, that person needs to exist. And that's what we mean by the vital phase. When we use that word vital, it's not that hard. When I've used this example so many times. If there's a car accident and EMS pulls up, they check for vital signs, which are signs of life. And so when we look at vital, we mean that there's a phase in God's salvation and God's dealings with men in which they have to be alive. Does that make sense? Could God send John the Baptist before John the Baptist was alive? Was Jesus Christ the Son of God before Mary had a baby? No. See the vital sense? Did God have a son by covenant promise in the eternal phase? Absolutely. Did, was, that, was that covenant son in the eternal phase, the basis for the legal justification of men? Yes. But he wasn't the son of God until he was born of Mary because there wasn't an enti- a, a person, Jesus of Nazareth, until Mary had a baby. And so it is with all of us. God cannot deal with us directly in a living way until we are alive. I hope that is, makes sense. You'll see it more clearly. The practical phase is when a living person is then acting and operating and responsible for what they are doing. It's the the actions in time, and it proves the fact that we are vitally alive because we're acting. And then there is the final phase to all of God's actions, and that's the consummation of his purpose and the end for which he planned and did anything, the actual end of it all. That's the climax and conclusion to whatever God has purposed way over in the eternal phase. It ends up in the final phase that this is what God intended all along. That's the first row, the first section that we're calling the description. 
That is how God operates in the Bible. Let me, let's, can we think of an example? Did God purpose that he would send his son Jesus Christ to die for the sins of his elect? And let's not even think about salvation yet. Did God purpose that? Where did that purpose occur? In, in the eternal phase. Did he look at the value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the, value, and the cost of men's sins and work the two of them together and apply the one toward the other in what stage? Legal. The legal. But we don't even have a son of God yet, do we? Because not until he was conceived, that the, the, the angel said to Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the son of God. Amen. And not until then did he actually have the vital son of God. Did the son of God live a life of perfection? Yep. The practical phase. Is the Son of God seated at God's right hand? The final phase of all that he ever intended to do with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to condemnation. Did you know that we're, we're sinners in five phases? We are, we are sinners in five phases. And please follow me so that you will understand this page and know how to use it. We are looking only at the condemnation band, which is about two inches wide. And we are in the eternal phase column. And it says about condemnation, sin was foreknown and planned. Sin imputation designed and the reprobation of the non-elect. And there are the verses that prove it. There were men that were ordained of old to condemnation. Right. There are vessels of wrath that were chosen to be vessels of wrath in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. There was no mistake in Eden. There was no mistake in the Garden of Eden. And right here is the, is the section that we go to and the verses to prove that there was no mistake in Eden. God planned it this way. God planned the entrance of sin into the world and into the universe because he had a higher plan. And that was the deliverance of his elect from that sin for the manifestation of his glory. But we're, we'll get to that in a moment. Now look at the four lines that are called main component and so forth under condemnation. Main component is reprobation. The word that is often used this is not a Bible word. Reprobate is a Bible word. But the word reprobation is not there. Reprobate is there. Reprobation is the component of the eternal phase of condemnation. Reprobation is the opposite of election. God chose to elect some to be saved. And God chose not to elect others and to pass them by and for them to be punished for their sins. And that's reprobation. The next line says, conditioned upon... And what that means is, what was reprobation conditioned upon? And the answer is God's will. Time occurring. When did was God's will exercised in passing by the reprobates, the non-elect, in eternity past? Then I have a line called common error. What is the common error about the doctrine of reprobation? It's ignored or rejected. Let me tell you, reprobation is not something that is taught in pulpits. You will not see it in the end zone of a football stadium. Right. It's not taught, but it used to be taught. Anyone that believes election ha assumes it, presumes it, and implies it by the doctrine of election, but they don't want to talk about it. It's just too scary for them. But listen, they believe it about the angels that sinned. Do you understand that? God just passed them by and didn't choose any of them to salvation. What are the other angels called? that he did not let sin. The elect angels and the holy angels. 
because he elected them, chose them, and kept them in their holiness. But he didn't the rest. But they don't get upset about the angels, do they? But when it gets close to home, all of a sudden they don't want to give God the glory. Now we better be willing to give God the glory for the fallen angels and for fallen man. Right. Right. And the common error is it's ignored or rejected. Now do you, do you understand how that works? We've just looked at the eternal phase of condemnation, and I hope that you see how those lines work. We have a description, sin foreknown and planned, sin imputation designed, and some verses to prove it. And then we have those four lines. Now let's go to the next column, the legal phase of condemnation. Adam ate the fruit in the garden, and God had the doctrine of representation established in a covenant with Adam. You eat the fruit, every one of your descendants is responsible for eating off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some people call it original sin. We call it the doctrine of representation. It's proven with some of our memory verses from a few weeks ago. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. God operates legally. He didn't make anyone a sinner. Do you, do you understand that? The eternal phase, he purposed the existence of sin in the universe, but he never made anyone sin. Do you call it making someone sin when you make a perfect garden and you make the man perfect and you come and talk with that man every day and you only give him one little tiny commandment? Would you call that making him sin? I call that just about making it impossible to sin. Did man have a sin nature then? No. Did he give him a good woman? Was she like Mrs. Job? Not until the devil got a hold of her. God did not make anyone sin, but God knew that they would sin and incorporated that foreknowledge into his eternal purpose of planning the entrance of sin into the universe. The main component of it is legal condemnation. I can prove you that I can prove that to you if you would go to Romans chapter 5 12 19 you would see the word condemnation used in a legal sense of us being tied to Adam I want to tell all of our children that all of us have eaten the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right. when we stand in court before God and the books are opened about our works one of the things that we have done is we have eaten the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Adam didn't did it for us and in him, our federal head, we all agreed that his action would be applied to our accounts. So we're legally condemned before we're ever born. Before Cain was born, we had eaten the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is conditioned upon Adam's transgression. The time was in the Garden of Eden. And what's the common error about this? It affected Adam only. It's not applied to all men. That's the common error. We don't really believe in that original sin stuff anymore. We believe that babies are born innocent, and they're innocent until the age of accountability, which we're going to get to in the next column also. But we don't believe in that original sin stuff. It affected Adam only. Adam ate, Adam died. But that isn't what the Bible says, is it? Right. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Third column, the vital phase, the living phase. We are conceived. Our mother and our father come together and we are conceived. And the moment we are conceived and we believe that, that is a living child, at the moment of conception. Right. And at that moment of conception, we are tied by nature to our parents, which ties us by nature to Adam and Eve, which means that we are flesh beings without a spirit toward God, but with a heart that is depraved and hates God from the moment of conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. 
When David said that, he was not talking about the fact that he was the product of an adulterous relationship by his mother. What he was talking about was that the moment he was conceived, he was in sin. He had a sin nature. So it's the vital phase. It's the living phase where we are alive in our mother's womb, but we already have a nature that is at enmity against God. We are God-haters. Some of the verses, I already quoted Psalm 51, 5 to you. John 3, 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. But we are only flesh by that first conception of our human parents. I have down here Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3 where it says that Adam brought forth a son in chapter 5 after his likeness, after his image. And what was his likeness and image? At enmity against God, hiding in the trees of the Garden of Eden and blaming God for his sin. It's the woman you gave me. Look at the components. The, natural, the main component is natural generation that's being conceived by parents, conditioned upon human reproduction. The time it occurs is at physical conception. What's the common error? The age of accountability. Children are innocent and sweet and lovely. Beautiful little babies. How can you tell me that that precious little baby has a sin nature? Don't feed it. Miss, miss its feeding schedule by 30 minutes, and it will tell you that it has a sin nature. You say, well, when a baby cries for food, that doesn't show any sin nature. Oh, not if it's just saying, I'm hungry. But little babies, after a few minutes, don't say, I'm hungry. They say, where are you, you lazy bum? Get in here and feed me. And you can tell it in their cry. If you've ever had babies, you hear that cry when it goes from one stage of, I'm hungry, to calling you names and telling you, you better get on the stick and get in here and feed me. And as soon as I hear that level of cry, I'm a very different parent. Very different parent. Because that language and that attitude and that spirit is from hell. And it has nothing to do with hunger. It has to do with the sin nature. And as soon as they get a little bit older, show, show them a cookie jar or a candy jar in your kitchen. Tell them they can't have it. And the most exciting thing in the whole world is to wait for mom to leave the kitchen so that they can go for that jar or that little hiding place for candy. This is the vital phase of our condemnation. We have a nature that is corrupt and an enmity against God and his law. The practical phase, which is the next column, the fourth column, under, and we're looking at condemnation, is when we, we practice sin. We show that we have a corrupt nature. We manifest the fact that we are spiritually dead. The main component is rebellion. It's conditioned upon human disobedience. When does it occur? Our own sins. And what's the common error about this condemnation? Life is still offered to all to make up for it. Job would say about this particular phase, he would say in Job chapter 15 and verse 16, Job, Job believed, and, and so the men with him, this fourth phase of condemnation. Job 15, 16, How much more abominable and filthy is man, which drinketh iniquity like water? That's the practical phase of condemnation. Drinking iniquity like water. Psalm 10.4, the Bible says that the wicked, you can tell that I don't know this one. Psalm 10 verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Right. Do, you Do you understand that nature? The pride of his countenance. He will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. If it wasn't for the grace of God, God would never enter our thoughts. Right. You say, well, I know people that live wickedly, and sometimes God enters their thoughts because they use his name in vain. 
We're not talking about that. We're talking about God entering his thoughts in any positive, profitable, loving way. There is none, and we would be like that if it wasn't for the grace of God. Amen. We come to the final phase of condemnation. The final phase of condemnation is the last judgment. It's hell. It's the lake of fire. God shows his wrath and his power on the vessels of wrath. It's the ultimate penalty for sinning. It's the display to the universe of God's justice and judgment for sinful, rebellious men. And the devil and his angels will be part of that number also. It is the display of God's glorious justice. The main component is damnation. It's conditioned upon God's judgment, God's justice. It occurs in the final day of resurrection. And the common error about this is that God regrets his action, that he's grieved as he sends men and angels to hell. But I haven't been able to find that in my study of the 31,165 verses in the Bible that he's going to be grieving in that day. Right. Because it says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Amen. And it says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Romans 9, right. This is what we believe about condemnation. And brethren, if you don't like it, you should have been God instead of the clay. And we are in that middle section. By nature, we are in that middle section. We are condemned from beginning to end. I hope you all understand how we use that section. Now let's look at salvation. The eternal phase of salvation is election. God chose us in Jesus Christ, and he chose Jesus Christ to be our great mediator and to be our great representative, the second Adam. Amen. He chose him. Look at it. The main component is election. It's conditioned upon God's will. The time occurring is eternity past. And what's the common error? Again, it's ignored or rejected. Election is not a popular doctrine to teach let alone reprobation, but they don't even teach election much anymore. And when they do, it's a modified form of election that means God looked down from heaven to see who was going to believe him and obey him and follow him, and he elected them. Now, what kind of election is that? That's like saying we're going to elect the man that's president. Let's elect George Bush to be our president. Well, he's already the president. Well, then quit talking about it being an election if God looks down and sees what men are going to do, and then he chooses them to be his elect. It's unconditional election is what we believe. God, look, God did look down from heaven upon the children of men, but he didn't find any that were seeking after him. Right. There wasn't one that did good. No, not one. Amen. They are all gone out of the way. There is none that seeketh after God. That's what he found. That's what we believe. And you have the definition of it there in that salvation section with verses to prove it. Many verses. Let's move to the next column, the legal phase of our salvation. God cannot simply clear the wicked. When you sin, and this is what I want our children to understand, when you sin, God cannot say like parents or teachers or others, ah, we'll overlook it this time. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. God cannot do that because God is just. Right. God can only forgive sin when that sin has been paid for because God is bound by his justice to legally be satisfied that sin has been paid for because he is holy. Amen. Because God is holy, sin must be paid for. Right. The soul that sinneth it must die. And the only way that soul can live is to have a substitute in its place that died for him. And so the legal phase of our salvation is the appointment of a man named Jesus of Nazareth who died for us. And he did die. 
He hung on the cross and he died. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He wasn't laid in the tomb and the cold, the, the cool air of the tomb revived him after fainting on the cross, as some want to teach today. He died and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Amen. But he died for us so that God could be satisfied that those sins were paid for for all of his elect. So that there's nothing left to their charge. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? If you go on and read past verse 33, it, is, it says, It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, Amen. who is even at the right hand of God. There is nothing that can be laid to the charge of God's elect. In that legal phase, Jesus Christ is set up as our second Adam so that his obedience is applied to our account. His righteousness is applied to our account. Our sins are applied to his account. All this took place 2,000 years ago because notice it says time occurring resurrection of Jesus Christ. It occurred 2,000 years ago before we were born because it was a legal transaction and God's legal transactions do not need your living existence. They just need your existence according to his eternal purpose. Right. Because in eternity he has known all of us by name. Our names have been written in the book of life. And so legally he can do things by expunging our sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we come to the vital phase. Oh, let's, no, let's go back. Legal phase, legal phase. What's the main component of the legal phase of salvation? Justification. What is justification? It means that God's elect are as righteous as Jesus Christ was. All their sins were paid for by his death, and all of his obedience was applied to their account. account. Imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's conditioned upon the death of Christ. It occurred at his resurrection. What's the common error? That this is potential only. Jesus made it possible, but we have to make it actual. What kind of an eternal plan was that of God's? Well, I'm going to try. Uh, you know, someone told me today that they're used to singing that song that I mentioned this morning. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus tries. Jesus tries. No, nobody sings it that way. No one sings it that way. But if they were to be honest with their theology, they should sing it that way. Right. Because Jesus saves no one in their theology. The difference between a man in hell and a man in heaven, there is absolutely no difference as to what God did for them. The Savior is man. Potential only. We have no potential in the death of Jesus Christ. He didn't sound like he had much potential in it. He said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Amen. He said, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Amen. Behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. Now, does that sound like potential or does that sound like performance? Amen. I'm thankful for a Savior that performed. We go to the third column, the vital phase of salvation. Jesus Christ gives life to the elect. Now, the elect were chosen in the first column by, the, by election in eternity. They were justified by Jesus Christ in the cross. But now, here we are. Let's say we're a 20-year-old sinner. We were conceived by sinful parents. We're only a flesh being. We're walking through life. We've been elected. We've been justified. But we have a nature that's still a God-hater. We've been adopted legally. 
The price has been paid for our legal adoption, and God sees us. That person isn't fit for heaven. Look at their spirit toward their father. So he regenerates us by the power of the Spirit of God, by the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gives life to the elect. A new nature is given to us by the new birth. We are born again. We are regenerated. When you were born to your parents, that is called generation. That's why we say one generation and another generation, because that is a generation of a generation. But when we're born of God, it is a regeneration because we are generated again. We are born again. And we're born again by the Spirit of God that gives us a new nature. So now this 20-year-old, and we don't know when it happens. It happened to John the Baptist in his mother's womb. He was leaping for joy by the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb. We don't know when it happens. All of a sudden we know, I think differently. There's something inside me that wants to fear God and worship God. God gives us a new nature, Amen. and it's called regeneration. It's the bestowal of the, vital, of the vitality of our eternal life. It's the living part that is like God. We have his nature. We have a nature that loves God. Right. We have a nature that loves his law. We have a nature that has his laws written on our hearts. We know our conscience is all of a sudden enlightened to a certain degree, and we're convicted, and we feel guilty. And we're wondering what we should do. We're like Cornelius. We wanted the practical phase to come. There Cornelius says he feared God with all his house. He's giving alms to the people. And he's praying to God how often? Always. Always. There's Cornelius. He was elected in eternity. Christ died for him on the cross. He's been born again. He's a Roman. Italian of the Italian band. And God has regenerated him so that he's doing things toward God and they are accepted by God because they are done sincerely from a new nature. Right. The sacrifice of the wicked, what does the Lord say about that? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord because it's not done with that new nature and it's not done by faith. There Cornelius is by faith, believing there is a God, praying to him all way, and he's giving alms to the people, proving his faith by works because he's been born again. The main component of this section is regeneration. It's conditioned upon the Spirit's will and power because the Spirit gives this life to all of God's elect. It occurs at the individual's new birth, which could be early in life or late in life, but it is during your lifetime. The common error is that being born again is conditional upon man doing something. That's why sometimes you'll hear me say decisional regeneration, where they ask for a decision to be made. If you'll make a decision for Jesus tonight, you can be born again and go to heaven when you die. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Right. The Bible teaches that, that God had better regenerate us before we'll ever make a decision for right. Jesus Christ. Right. Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't discern them. He can't know them. God must change us first before we can ever do anything toward God. We do not believe that we can go around offering the new birth to men by them doing something at all that's not taught in the Bible, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Men are not born again by their will. Men are born again by the will of God, and Amen. then they have a will toward God. But they get the order all mixed up there, order salutis, order salacious. But anyway, they, don't, they miss it all. Let's go to the fourth column, the practical phase of salvation. 
We have an elect child of God. Jesus Christ is justified on the cross. He's been born again. Now he begins to act. He has that new nature within him. So his works prove his justification. He's converted. He hears the gospel. He believes it. He loves it. The Bible says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, who have that old nature, foolishness, but unto us which are saved, those that are born again, it is the power and wisdom of God. To the Greeks, it is foolishness. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. You see the huge difference that it makes because of that vital phase, God changing the nature, the gospel is received very differently. This is called conversion. We make a huge difference between regeneration in that third column and conversion in the fourth. Most theologians don't know the difference between the two, confuse them, call them synonyms. Jesus said to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Do you think Peter needed to be regenerated? He'd been an apostle of Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He needed to be converted from his impulsive spirit of wanting to keep Jesus Christ from the cross. James chapter 5, 19 and 20 says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one, convert him. Notice it's a brethren. It's something we do for brethren. That means they're already born again into the family of God, but they need to be converted from one false doctrine back to the truth. Conversion is conditioned upon the obedience of the elect. It occurs when every individual repents and turns to the Lord because conversion is a turning to the Lord. And as we're taught, we turn to the Lord. How is, what, what is the common error about the practical phase of conversion? It's misapplied to eternal life. It's misapplied to eternal life. Conversion is not a condition for eternal life. If conversion's a condition for eternal life, how much conversion are you talking about? Does a three-point Calvinist, is he converted enough to gain eternal life by his conversion? I mean, what, do you have to believe Bible prophecy or those matters of liberty? Conversion doesn't have, is not a condition for eternal life. Right. Conversion is the degree of God's blessing in this life to come and understand his hidden wisdom and mysteries in this life. It depends on several things, the blessing of God, the blessing of his spirit, the faithfulness of your pastor, and your faithfulness in applying what you hear. If any one of those are weak and God chooses not to bless, you will be converted less than others. If you have a pastor that does not do his job, you will not be saved, and that salvation is you will not be fully converted. The final phase of salvation is our glorification. It's when the elect receive their eternal life, were resurrected and given glorified bodies. It's conditioned upon God's faithfulness. It occurs in the final day of resurrection and the common error made about it. It is separated from God's plan. They look at all these people that end up in heaven in the book of life and they don't see it as God's plan. They see it as there's a new name written down in glory. And they miss the fact that everyone that makes it into heaven and is there for the glory and praise of the Lamb was chosen there before the world began. Now let me test you on page one. Let me test you on page one. First Timothy, I'll read, I'll read you some verses, just a few, since I've already blown what I said about time. First Timothy chapter one and verse 15, the apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What phase of salvation is that word, save sinners? Legal, because, and it tells us very plainly, you, you, you follow? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
What Paul is talking about there is what Jesus did in the cross, and it's the legal work of salvation. How about Titus chapter 3 and verse 5? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. It's vital, because He knows the rest of the verse. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Notice what person of the Godhead is active in this phase. It's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. It's called regeneration, but it's also called a salvation by God's mercy. Titus 3, 5, it's the vital phase of salvation. Somebody will say, who gives you the right to divide up these verses of salvation this way? I don't have the right to do it. I have the responsibility to do it. The responsibility is 2 Timothy 2, 15, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'll give you one to show you that we better rightly divide it. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul told Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. What salvation is that? The practical phase. Do you want to make that the legal phase? Do you mean that your eternal life and heaven above is dependent upon your pastor taking heed to himself and to the doctrine? Lord, have mercy upon us. No, Lord, have mercy upon you, because I'm your pastor. That'd be horrible. You're not dependent upon me for your eternal life, but you are dependent upon me for your salvation in the practical phase of conversion. What if a minister doesn't take heed to himself? Do we all know what happens? What if a minister doesn't take heed to the doctrine? Where did Thomas and Alexander Campbell come from? The founders of the Church of Christ. They were Presbyterians, tired of Presbyterianism, and joined some Baptist churches, and then left the Baptists to start the Church of Christ. Every wind of doctrine is is possible when, when ministers do not take heed to the doctrine. And the salvation that you as a church lose is that you no longer have a pastor that's leading you in the truth. He's leading you in error, and you have lost your salvation. Not your eternal life, your practical phase of salvation, that fourth column, your conversion. You're still elect, still justified, still regenerated, will be glorified, but a minister has caused you to lose many of the blessings of conversion and knowing the things that God has prepared for them that love him. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 is the eternal phase of salvation. Paul said in Romans 13.11, Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. <laughs> Listen to those words. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And he's writing that to the saints at Rome. What phase of salvation must that be? The final phase of salvation, glorification, is nearer than when they believed. Matthew one twenty one: She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The legal phase of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.22 By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you. Practical. Brethren, what if we made that verse any other salvation? 1 Corinthians 15.22, listen to the words, By which also ye are saved, 
if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Well, now, what if you forget it? Are you going to lose your name in the book of life? Just think of the, of the confusion we would have if we didn't divide it up. Do you, do you know what that's talking about? The resurrection of the dead. You lose your hope. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is all about hope. You forget the, res- res- the resurrection of the dead and you lose your hope by forgetting it. Paul said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Is he trying to save men from hell? Being made all things to all men? That's the practical phase. Conversion. Paul was willing to do anything to help a man in his conversion to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow Him in obedience. And we could go on and on about seeing the different phases of salvation in verses that use the word saved. Now flip it over. Flip it over. I know, I know what time it is. I'm more upset than you are. Chart number two. The components of salvation. This, this backside, five columns again, the same columns, but the rows are the different aspects of salvation, the different parts of salvation. And let me just mention a couple of them, and it'll be an evening for us. Let's go down to the middle and look at adoption. I preached two sermons to you about adoption. Do you remember them? Did you, did you love them? I love them. I love preaching them to you that God has adopted us as his sons and his daughters. Do you remember? He looked into the orphan. Remember? Wasn't it wonderful? Forget the elocution of the sermon. Do you remember the content of it? Wasn't it wonderful? Amen. Do you know it's really just these five columns is all I preach to you with a whole lot of other verses, but it's these five columns. What does adoption mean? To make sons. To take someone that isn't your son and make him your son. That's what adoption means. So once you figure out what it means, look at the eternal phase. Predestinated to be sons. Are, are there verses that say precisely that? Amen. Ephesians 1.5 precisely says that, and so does Romans 8.29. But can God just make anyone his son, or does he have a nature that he has to satisfy? Right. Yes. So there's the legal phase of adoption where Christ satisfied the law in order for God to have sons by dying and paying for our sins so that he wouldn't be angry at his sons. Then, is there still a problem? When he looked into the, to the orphanage, remember, and he came to the window and we saw him, what did we do? We spat at him, do you remember? Because we were still God-haters. So he regenerated us, we were born again, and he changed our nature. So that we're born again as the sons of God. Then along comes the gospel and tells us that God has adopted us. And what do we do? We obey. Because we want to look like the sons of God. We want to please our Father which is in heaven. Amen. 1 John 3.10. Do we know that verse? 1 John 3.10. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. No. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. There's the action of a true son of God in the way he behaves himself toward others and toward God. We show that we're the sons of God. That's when the father, who's gone through all the process of adoption, looks at his son and is pleased. Amen. Pleased. 
the work that I've done, the choice that I've made, the price that I've paid has worked. Look at this son of mine. And the final phase of adoption is when our bodies are going to be redeemed from the grave and we're going to be admitted and proclaimed to the entire universe that we are the sons and daughters of God. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Here are all your children that you've given me to redeem. Do you see how simple adoption is? You... I'll I'll show you books. If you want to see the confusion about the subject of adoption, I will give you books this thick on adoption and see when you get through that book all the way through it, if you know it better or less than you know it from reading that line right there across and looking up the verses after you've understood the five phases. I am nothing, and this piece of paper is nothing except a tool for you to know the word of God and to rightly divide the doctrine of salvation. And I beg all of the young men to learn it. Forgiveness. Just think about forgiveness. You say there's blank spots in this page. Yes, because I don't force verses where they don't belong. And sometimes God is not trying to show five phases for all aspects. Forgiveness is spoken of in two senses. There's a forgiveness that Jesus Christ secured at the cross. We, re, we, re, we were redeemed and were forgiven by the blood of the cross. Amen. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. And yet there's a forgiveness that is dependent upon us confessing our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Right. That is a practical forgiveness that restores fellowship. The Amen. first forgiveness restored a relationship with God of a legal nature. We were reconciled to God. The second one is a restoration of fellowship because it tells us that in 1 John chapter 1. Last, last line. I mean, we'll look down to sanctification. Sanctification. Let me explain sanctification to you in two minutes. Sanctification means to make something holy fit for God's use and God's presence. Sanctification means to make holy right. for God's use and God's presence. We were chosen to be holy. You know Ephesians 1, 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. holy. We were chosen to be holy and without blame. Jesus Christ secured our holiness. Hebrews chapter 10 says, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He's made us holy forever. Legally, the vital phase of of a holiness, of, of, of sanctification... Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4, we are given a new nature by region. Ephesians 4.24 is an additional verse to these. It's my favorite on this point. We are given a new nature that is created in righteousness and true holiness. We have a new nature inside us that is based in true holiness. Fifth, fourth, we are commanded to be holy in our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I preached it to you recently, well, months ago. That's recent to me. I'm old. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that ye should not commit fornication. So there's practical holiness. Amen. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. But what sanctification? Is that the will of God that Jesus secured for us at the cross? Did he guarantee that we would never commit fornication? Or is that a choice that we must make to walk a life of holiness? Amen. Be ye holy actively as I am holy. And then fifth, the final phase, 
the elect will be made completely holy when our bodies are holy. And 1 Thessalonians 5.23 actually tells us that we will be holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, holy, will be holy body, soul, and spirit. Have you ever heard anyone say, saved from the penalty of sin? Talking about the death of Christ? Did you see that line I had all the way across the front page? This is my last, just just that last line, under salvation before the, the verses of proof. In the eternal phase, we're saved from the plan of sin by the choice of God. In the legal phase, we're saved from the penalty of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the vital phase, we're saved from the power of sin by being given a nature that doesn't have to sin. In the fourth phase, we are saved from the practice of sin by choosing to live a life of holiness. And the fifth phase, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin because we'll be in a holy place where there is no sin. May Jesus Christ be praised. This is all to his honor and glory in rightly dividing the word of truth so that he gets all the glory that he deserves and our responsibility is put in its proper place. May Jesus Christ be praised.